Welcome to the Family Law Now podcast. I'm Russell Alexander. I've been practicing family law for over 20 years. We serve clients during separation and divorce, and we upload videos twice a week on interesting cases and keeping up to date with respect to changes in the pandemic. Today, we're going to discuss a deadbeat dad's failure to pay child support and being incarcerated for four and a half years. Uh, it's a controversial decision for some coming out of Nova Scotia released recently. Uh, and this particular father failed to pay over $247,000 uh, and was found to be in contempt of court. So that's our subject matter today. Thank you everyone for joining us. But we've assembled a bit of a dream team here. So I want to welcome our guests. Uh, Margie, you want to start? Yes, uh, thanks Russ. Um, my name is Margie Pamara Pimentel. Uh, I am a uh, associate lawyer here uh, with the Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. Um, I've been a lawyer 19 years uh, as of next month. And I've been practicing family law for uh, 14 years. So that's a little bit about me. Goes by quick, eh? Yes, it does. <laughs> Brittany, you want to go next? Yes, thank you, Russ. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. My name is Brittany Whalen. I am an associate lawyer with Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers as well. Um, I practice primarily in the area of family law. However, I also have a background in criminal, human rights, and civil litigation. And I was called to the Ontario Bar in 2016, and then I was called to the Bar in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in 2017. I've been practicing family law since 2017. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you for joining us this morning. Rick, you want to go next? Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you, Russ. Um, my name is uh, Rick Patika. Uh, I practice in the areas of matrimonial and family law, and I've been practicing family law exclusively uh, approximately 14 years this June. So, and I work for, um, I'm an associate lawyer here at Russell so Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. The best of the best joining us today. It's really quite an honor. So we've got this decision. We're gonna break it down into uh, a couple chunks. So we're gonna talk about the facts. We're gonna talk about the law and we're gonna talk about the outcome. You know, it's kind of shocking uh, somebody who's jailed for four and a half years on an issue of child support. This decision certainly has gotten a lot of attention in the media and it's gotten us thinking of a, um, it's a fairly extraordinary remedy to put somebody in jail. Um, and uh, we don't see it too often. And certainly not for um, this length of time. So let's get into the facts here. What happened in this case? So the facts of this case, as Russ said, are very interesting. Um, just a bit of a background. Uh, this is a case uh, of um, mom, dad, and two kids. Uh, mom and dad separated in 2007. Um, fast forward to 2013, and a court found uh, that the, the dad um, was underpaying his child support and ordered that he pay retroactive child support as well as um, ongoing child support. Um, after he was ordered to pay uh, retroactive uh, and ongoing child support in 2013, and for two years thereafter, uh, dad failed to pay the child support owing and eventually accumulated a child support debt of approximately $247,000. Um, you know, in between those, the, between 2013 and 2015, he paid 
only about $22,000 of what was owing, um, which was originally a hefty child support uh, debt of $269,046. So the court looked at the evidence. Uh, The the evidence showed that uh, dad was only making what the courts characterized as token efforts to support his children. Um, He essentially foisted his his, uh, final obligations, his child support obligations upon his former wife and his his, uh, elderly uh, parents. Um, At that point, his parents were, uh, his dad was 70 years old, his mother was retired. And from the ages of six to 12, until the children were 15 and 19, they went without uh, the proper financial support from their father, who was an IT professional, while they were supported primarily by their mother, uh, who had no uh, professional qualifications. So in 2015, um, the court found the dad in contempt of the 2013 order. And dad knew about the penalty phase. So after he was found in contempt, he was going to uh, have to appear at a penalty uh, hearing. And he knew about that uh, hearing, but failed to show up. Instead, dad uh, moved to Denmark with his new wife and their son. Uh, Dad then stayed in Denmark until he was deported in February 2019. And he was subsequently arrested in November 20, on November 20, 2020. uh, So uh, late last year under a a Canada-wide arrest warrant and returned to Nova Scotia. So this decision, which was heard on December, this hearing was heard on December 21st, 2020, so about a month ago. And the court had to decide at that point the appropriate remedy, uh, appropriate penalty for uh, the father's civil um, contempt. So mom was seeking um, uh, various relief. Uh, She wanted that he be uh, given a five-year jail term plus various fines, interest, and costs amounting to an additional uh, $454,000. So that's not including the original $247,000 that he still owed in support. So that it's is what quite interesting about. just to cut you off there. Yeah. She spent more than she was owed collecting it. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to wonder somehow th- how this litigation just gets out of control. Yes, but uh, yeah, I let's I get back to the there. facts. I'm just yeah. saying it, it's an extraordinary amount of money. It is. It is. But that that's where we're we're at in terms of the the the, the factual background. Right. Great summary, Marjorie. Really appreciate it. Sorry to interrupt you there. That's okay. Okay, Rick, the law, what's going on here? What was the judge uh, looking at when making this decision? Well, the judge basically, as Margie said, this was basically a penalty hearing. And the, and the judge uh, was looking at what was the appropriate penalty because the um, contempt of court order was already made back in 2015. So they already crossed that threshold in terms of a legal test to determine whether or not he was in civil contempt. Now, the purpose of this hearing was what was the appropriate penalty to uh, give to Mr. Power and to consider whether there were any mitigating or aggravating factors uh, in coming to that decision. Uh, In terms of mitigating factors, uh, those probably would constitute like an admission. Uh, And there wasn't an admission, Mr. Power did admit that he he was uh, uh, not only that he was he was in contempt, but it, that he was remorseful. Uh, but the question is, the judge had had some concern about the level of remorse, whether he was actually remorseful for his own actions, 
or he was actually remorseful for breaching the court orders. Um, remorseful for being in court that day. Well, <laughs> and, 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 it's, and it kind of struck me how the judge wrote the decision is that he was more remorseful for being caught and being brought back before the court as opposed to what he had done and his failure not to comply with that order. Uh, the judge looked at, at several factors, uh, including the fact that his current wife and Mr. Power were saying that they were trying to look at selling their home, but they couldn't sell their home in uh, uh, trying to give the ex-wife or ex-spouse the uh, half of the uh, half of the net proceeds of sale. But the judge kind of felt that he was trying to um, persuade the wife to take a lower uh, deal on the child support uh, rather than paying what he actually owed. Um, and he as well as being cute, right? He had the assets potentially, he just chose not to access them. And th and that's just it, though. The judge found that he had he had uh, moved a lot of his assets offshore. Uh, he was working in Norway. So. Uh, as the judge said in the last sentence, and I, I found it very telling, said his Mr. Power's remorse is genuine, but it's not clear if his remorse was actually genuine enough for defying the actual court order. Um, she then went on to look at aggravating factors, and uh, aggravating factors look, can constitute things like lack of remorse, whether there are multiple breaches. And I think most telling in this case is what was the payer's uh, conduct post contempt order. Uh, and the fact that, as Margie said, that he moved away to Norway in an attempt to flee the order and try to shirk his, his financial obligations, I think that was the most telling uh, of everything. Um, it's almost consciousness of guilt in the criminal sense, right? That, that's right, though. And, and, and I think that's, that's where the quote, quote unquote we're going to use uh, criminal law terminology, the mens rea or the intent right. was there to, uh, to flee. So, so, so the outcome was the judge found um, and based on their rules of civil procedure, uh, which allow the judge to make the order. And I, I think this is what's calling into question uh, is the length of the incarceration four and a half years. And at first, when I read it, I, I, I found that a little bit telling in the sense that uh, it's a civil contempt order, not, and it's a civil uh, proceeding, not a criminal one. And yet, this uh, Mr. Power was given a four and a half year sentence. But their rules of civil procedure allowed the the courts in Nova Scotia to uh, grant um, uh, terms of imprisonment of not less than five years. So, right. Sorry, Margie, we're going to jump in there. No, I was just going to make a point about uh, Dad's behavior as well. Uh, I found, uh, the, the court found that he and his current wife were appear to be deliberately hiding uh, or, or not really being truthful about the the value of their assets. So I think that's also, right. um, you know, there's a sense of deliberation there, um, not cooperating, lack of transparency. So I just thought the only thing I wanted to, to comment on that. So Brittany, talk a little bit more about the outcome. What was uh, the final outcome of this decision? Oh, absolutely, Russ, thank you. So. In the end, the, the court decided that a stiff penalty was warranted. Um, they found that the penalty had to reflect the degree of responsibility or their lack thereof that the, um, the father had take, taken for his actions. Um, the court, and I'll quote, said, the penalty needed to compel 
respect for court orders, to recognize the gravity of his actions and responsibility, to denounce his conduct and deter him and others from breaching court orders. So they looked at his past conduct in the five years since he had been found in contempt. And despite being periodically employed, he only made a handful of payments mm -hmm. for support and he didn't make any ongoing support payments. Yeah, he, his payment, his repayments, or he didn't really have a schedule of payments. It's kind of ad hoc. Um, really no effort that, a genuine effort, eh? I, would, I would say, Brittany. And as we already mentioned, he, he moved his financial affairs offshore. And that kind of goes to the willful and deliberate intent to skirt his responsibility. Um, the court disbelieved his excuses, as, uh, as Greg already pointed out. And after noting that the father had already spent 31 days in jail, they ultimately decided that another 4.5 years of incarceration was warranted. That said, they did add the caveat that if the father paid off, the, the arrears, the outstanding money, that he could purge the contempt order and it would cease to be in effect. The court ultimately decided to decline the mother's request for additional fines and costs. They found that it would not assist in the coercive effect of the, the incarceration. It would be disproportionate. Yeah, and, and we see this a lot in Ontario where courts uh, remind litigants an order is an order, it's not a suggestion, right? And they need some teeth, otherwise nobody's going to follow court orders. Um, one interesting, just from practicing in Ontario, uh, the general rule, as I understood it, is for non-payment of money, you cannot get somebody incarcerated unless it's through the Family Responsibility Office. But if non-payment of a civil judgment isn't going to end up having you sent to the debtor prisons in Australia or something like that. Um, but this is slightly different. This is contempt of court. It wasn't necessarily non-payment. And that triggers um, the court's inherent jurisdiction to enforce its orders. So I think uh, it kind of pulled it out of the legislative realm and became an issue of the administrative of justice, administration of justice. But what sections in Ontario do you guys, I, I know we talked a little bit about this in emails this morning, but what sections do you think would be relevant when considering uh, incarceration for um, a matter in Ontario courts? Russ, if I can, if I can uh, offer a suggestion, it's probably section 53 of the, uh, of the Family Responsibility and Support Arrears and Enforcement Act, uh, which provides the, um, uh, the guideline to a court, what remedy would be available on a, on a finding of contempt. Right. And I think uh, at a default hearing, the court can certainly order a period of incarceration um, outside of a contempt finding, um, but as a part of an, an enforcement mechanism in Ontario. If you're finding this video helpful, give it a, a thumbs up in the comments box below. But let's turn to uh, our, our guests today. So what do you think? Did um, the judge get it right? Brittany, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so with respect to the contempt motion itself, contempt motions are a last resort. They, they're only used when other means of compelling compliance with the court order have been attempted and failed or un, are, are unlikely to succeed. So in this case, um, certainly they tried different things and the father was making it very difficult. Uh, he was he was had no intention of 
going through these obligations and there was really no other option. This was a last resort. Um, the standard of proof in a contempt uh, matter is proof beyond a reasonable doubt of each and every element of the, the claim. So civil contempt, it's, it's quasi-criminal. So there has there is a presumption of innocence. Um, basically, the test is there has to be a court order in place, which in this case there was. The terms of the order have to be clear, unambiguous. My understanding uh, from the reading of the case is that he knew. He was put on notice of the terms of the order. Um, there was disobedience of the order. And it was done in, in a deliberate and noble fashion. Uh, so after being put on proper notice, he was given the opportunity to make full answer in defense. He just decided not to. He didn't attend the penalty hearing scheduled back in 2015, and then he didn't need any evidence during the proceedings that took place last year. So in deciding whether or not um, a litigant has behaved in a willful and deliberate contemptuous matter, manner, I apologize, the, the court will look at an explanation. Is there an explanation for their actions? Well, here, the, the father, he offered a couple of explanations, but basically he was trying, trying to blame others. Support enforcement program, uh, the mother in this case, anybody and everybody but himself. That's why the court found that he really wasn't taking responsibility. His only regret was that he was finding himself in this situation. Uh, they'll also look at efforts that the party made to ensure compliance. Well, here the court noted that he had only made token efforts little bit of support here and there. Um, there was one effort where he had, the father had offered to sell the matrimonial home and give 50% of the proceeds as support payment, but that only really worked out to be about 60% of what was owed. So basically that the court viewed that as an attempt to, uh, to lowball the mom and try to skirt half of his responsibility. Uh, the other, the last consideration would be were there other obstacles not of the person's own making or other reasons that could provide the sufficient excuse for the charge of contempt? Well, here, all of the father's conduct, were, he was pretty much the author of his own misfortune. Everything he did, he did, he did on his own accord. Uh, but that said, if there's any doubt with respect to the necessary elements, they have to be resolved in favor of the person being charged. Um, here, it doesn't seem as though there was any, any doubt. I think the court did get it right with respect to whether or not he should be held in contempt. That said, uh, with respect to the penalty, did the court get it right? My answer is uh, one that lawyers love to give and, and clients don't like to receive. Maybe yes, maybe no, maybe a bit of both, depends. Um, so, Sentencing principles, going based on my, my background of um, criminal law. Basically, you want a sentence to be restorative to the victim. So in this case, you wanna make sure that it's remedial in the sense that mom and the children get some sort of relief. You, you wanna compel the father to make payment. It also has to serve the purpose of deterrence and that's both general and specific. So you wanna deter the individual person from uh, not following court orders and uh, not making payments. And you also want to send a message to the public that this isn't okay. Um, in this case, the court highlighted the need to 
tell the public that court orders must be followed. It's in the interest of uh, the administration of justice. It goes to the heart, to the core of our, of our system. But those considerations need to be balanced in the context of a family law case against the best interests of the child. Um, so I will come back to that, but first I, I'd like to talk a little bit about how this penalty um, holds up against charter scrutiny. So all laws in Canada have to, to be legitimate and they have to be justified under our constitution, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms specifically. In this case, the, the penalty involved a period of incarceration, a lengthy period of incarceration. So that automatically triggers uh, charter rights, specifically rights under Section 7, which protect our right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So that means that, so, so in this case, his liberty rights are infringed. He's being detained, he's being put into, into a incarceration facility. And you, you can only deprive someone of their liberty so long as the, uh, the law is not vague, it's not arbitrary, not overbroad, or grossly disproportionate. That brings us to section 12 of the charter, which guarantees everyone the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. So going through this, <clears throat> I did a little bit of a section one charter analysis to see whether this uh, this punishment would be upheld. That's going back to law school, section one. <laughs> back to the basics. So section one of the charter says that limitations on rights have to be reasonable and they have to show on the balance of probabilities that the limitation was one prescribed by law, so it has to be accessible, intelligible. Any vagueness or unfettered discretion to do what seems best in a wide set of circumstances is not permitted. Number two, the limit has to be justified in a free and democratic society. So there has to be a justifiable purpose and it has to be proportionate to that purpose. The limit has to be as small as reasonably possible. So I think that's where a lot of us are getting stuck. You know, was four and a half years appropriate? Was that reasonable? So if we go through this step by step, number one under the Oaks test is, is there a pressing and substantial objective? I think we can all agree that protecting the administration of justice is a pressing and substantial objective. It sends a message that willful disobedience of law and court orders is serious, strikes the heart of the justice system, and it's also a remedial tool that resolves to resolve problems that give rise to the contempt, in this case, getting the father to pay up. But the means to achieving the objective have to be proportional. That means that the means have to be rationally con connected to the objective. So this one here gave me a little bit of pause. In family law cases, uh, the objective of upholding the administration of justice and, and getting the father to pay. There's a, there's a little bit of conflict there. Uh, you need to balance that against protecting the best interests of the children. In this case, prison sentences can, can sometimes affect a, a family dynamic. The father may not have the ability to pay because instead of working and, and uh, 
earning income, they're incarcerated. I believe the, the individual in this case, he had three different children, uh, two from the first marriage, one from the second marriage. Um, there wasn't really any evidence on the, the third child in, in the decision, but how does the father being incarcerated for four and a half years affect his ability to pay ongoing support, to work and pay ongoing support? And how does the incarceration affect the children generally? Just, you know, this is a very public case. How is that? How, how are the children going to feel about, about that knowledge that their father's now in jail and, and the public being aware of that? Um, moving on to whether or not the limit in this case is minimally impairing the rights. So we know that in contemporary proceedings, courts have wide powers. There's a lot of different things that they can do um, as a penalty. Here, they, they opted for the incarceration route. Was that appropriate? Could they have used some other power available to them to accomplish their goals? Arguably, maybe you know, a seizure of assets or something like that, seizure and sale that would accomplish the goal of, of having the father pay the money that was due, perhaps not so much with respect to the denunciation and the deterrence aspect of it, but I don't know that these other options were completely explored in the decision. Uh, the next step would be proportionality between the infringement and objective. Here, you know, I don't know that there's a, a serious conflict. It seems as though they are in line with one another but the penalty has to be proportionate to the gravity of the wrongdoing. And there cannot be a marked departure from sentences opposed in like circumstances. So in Ontario, we have legislation that limits the possible jail time for non-payment of support arrears to 90 days pursuant to the legislation that we've discussed. Is there any reason why a court in Ontario, in Nova Scotia, should handle this in a different matter. Obviously, our legislature has decided that there are specific policy reasons for putting a limit on the amount of jail time that can be granted in a family law matter. Some of those I've already discussed. How does, how does incarceration affect a father's ability to pay? How does it affect the family dynamic? Um, so we've, we've carved that out. In Nova Scotia, they have not. So I think there would be, um, you know, some there's some questions surrounding surrounding that. Why haven't they? Um, in order for a law to pass to pass charter scrutiny, you have to show that it that it's not arbitrary. It seems to me that the uh, the limit of five years in Nova Scotia really gives a court unfettered discretion to award whatever they received it. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there, but maybe let, give everyone else a chance to talk and we can, we can come back to this if uh, anyone else wants to add anything. You know, we sometimes forget in family law that we have a charter of rights in the constitution that supersedes a lot of these decisions. So that's a really good analysis to take us back to, you know, step one in terms of what of our basic rights and obviously the right to liberty is uh, fundamental to everybody. All right, so we're back. Um, I just want to apologize to our listeners. We're getting a bit of a clicking noise in the background. 
Uh, we were able to troubleshoot it and I think our audio is much better now. So let's turn to Margie. Margie, do you think the court got it right here? Uh, yes, uh, short answer, yes. I, I believe the court got it right um, because the court in this case really had few options to compel dad to fulfill his child support obligations, which as we, as we know, uh, were very significant. Um, the court also wanted to send a very clear message and that's orders must be complied with, especially if they are orders for child support. The evidence in this case showed that dad had little regard for uh, court orders um, and, and specific, specifically the court order requiring him to pay child support. Um, and he benefited to his children's detriment from his fail failure to pay child support. The evidence also showed that he was evasive about the value of his assets which he could have used to pay um, his child support. Lastly, he did not seem to take responsibility for his actions. And as Brittany pointed out, he blamed others for the circumstances that he found himself in. So yes, I think the court did and, and they had the uh, statutory uh, authority to Im uh, impose that, that sentence. And I think they got it right. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Rick, what do you think? Court got uh, it right in this case? I, I agree with both Margie and, and Brittany. Um, the, Mr. Power didn't come to court with clean hands. And I think the court had to, had to send a strong message. And as Margie said, uh, that compliance of orders is paramount, especially in this situation where he was trying to shirk his obligations uh, or his child support obligations. But I, 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 I echo the concerns that Brittany raised as well. There's a concern with a four and a half year sentence, uh, not only with respect to a charter challenge, but also probably whether the uh, whether the legislation in Nova Scotia uh, infringes on the uh, federal government's right in the criminal law domain. Uh, if I remember criminal law from my first year of law school, uh, an indictable offense is something over two years of uh, penitentiary and uh, and I would have preferred the judge to elaborate on why she felt four and a half years uh, was appropriate, uh, as opposed to any other number uh, that the legislation would have allowed. Uh, and, and even to go with what uh, Brittany was saying is to expand on why that uh, level of uh, incarceration was appropriate. And in terms of sentencing. Almost, almost like a, in the very sense what a criminal court does when they sentence an offender. They usually go through the uh, explanation why they feel that sentence is appropriate. Yeah, good point. I'm gonna stir the pot a little bit here. Um, if, he, if dad goes to jail, he's not gonna earn any income, right? So how's he gonna be able to pay his child support? But respectfully, he hasn't been paying his child support even when he was working. True, but now he's really not going to be able to pay. I, I don't I don't think we're going to hear the last of this, uh, Russ. I, 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 I can foresee someone's going to bring an appeal on this to the uh, Court of Appeal in Nova Scotia, and maybe, maybe even go to the Supreme Court uh, in terms of the sentencing aspect. So I think... Uh, also, I to stir the pot a little bit more... You know, what's it cost to incarcerate somebody in a federal institution? Sixty to one hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm. We have mom spending four hundred grand to collect two forty-seven. 
now we're on the hook, the public's on, the taxpayer's gonna be on the hook for potentially three to $500,000 to incarcerate this person. Uh, is this the best use of our resources? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I didn't really think about that, but that, that's, that's a really good point. Um, what, what, what are the alternatives? No. I mean, I think the courts have, have uh, you know, again, I, I'm trying to stir the pot as well. I'm trying to play devil, devil's advocate here, but you know, what else can the court do? From, I'm just saying from a taxpayer point of view, this whole thing sounds ridiculous, how much money people have spent on this case. Uh, really, it ultimately comes down to the children. They weren't being provided for in accordance with the legislation. And I'm just, I'm being kind of coy here. Of course, I think the court got the decision correct. Um, if this was um, a desolate dad living on the streets with no assets or no potential to pay the support order, there's no way the court would incarcerate that parent for four and a half years. I think the judge clearly made a strategic decision that these assets are available after he spends a few weeks uh, in the big house or in jail, uh, they're quickly gonna refinance the home and get them out. And that's gonna purge his contempt and the sentence will be over. Uh, so clearly I think the judge was um, sending a message to the public like Brittany correctly identified. But I think she tailored this sentence to be so extreme that um, dad's gonna pay up. Right? He's not going to sit in jail for four and a half years if he's got access to a $300,000 house and other assets. So clearly, I think that's what was motivating the court. Had he had no assets, no income, no prospect of income, I don't think judges are going to arbitrarily uh, detain people for four or five years um, uh, based on a support order. But my, that's my own take. I could, I could be uh, completely wrong. Okay. So in this, in dad's circumstances, uh, the punishment was not excessive because he had the ability to pay. You know, he had a house, he had money, probably some offshore accounts. Um, and that, I believe in the, you sent me an article that kind of said, we're not quite sure whether the ability to purge contempt is, a, is an actual consideration or not. It's something that the father argued, hey, I can't afford to, to purge it, but not sure whether or not that, that's relevant. Um, but from a constitutional standpoint, it would be because you look at the penalty in relation to the individual, circum, uh, individual offender's circumstances, but you also look at a hypothetical uh, offender. So would this be appropriate for anyone? You know, no. so that, exactly. So that's where I think the section 12 would be triggered. Especially I don't think if you have the assets or the income, they're not going to put like I said, they're not, we're not sending people to debtors prisons in Australia where the judge probably knew this person would pay yeah. uh, once they go to jail for a few days. And also you're looking at this right now from a family law standpoint, but it's also quasi criminal. And in a criminal case, you look at all the circumstances of the offender. So here they're, they're only looking at the two children involved, but obviously there, there's another child and Presumably, dad was supporting those children while he was living with them yeah. in Denmark. And he can't work now for four and a half years. So I know that in the context of this case, that wasn't contemplated. But because of the criminal nature of this, 
his circumstances as a whole should have been uh, factored in. And the last thing I, I just want to speak to is Margie, you had pointed out uh, the, four, the four and a half years is appropriate. What else, what else could you do? Uh, Russ said, you know, you know, 30 days, 90 days in Ontario, that's what we use. And you said, or maybe something uh, less punitive. And you said, well, dad's not paying. So even if he's in jail or not, he's not paying either way. But that kind of brings into question our legislation. If 90 days isn't enough, then what, you know, why did we set it at 90 days? And in this case, after spending 31 days in jail, dad kind of changed his tune a little bit. I don't know how that he was, you know, guilt stricken and, and uh, remorseful. He still hadn't purged his the contempt, but seemed like he changed his tune a little bit. How do you maybe spend the 90 days in jail? Well then. Yeah, I think the, over, the overriding concern was the administrative the administration of justice and having corridors enforced, right? Yeah. That kind of trumped everything here. <clears throat> and I think, I think like Russ said, I think the dad in this case had the ability to purge that. And I think that's why the judge ordered that, that sentence because the judge knew it's gonna scare him to pay it. Yeah. 10 days, he might do 10 days and drag the litigation. Yeah, for another exactly. Or so, are, we still, like, are we at a consensus that in Ontario, it's 90 days. There's something else in the support um, <clears throat> that gives you, it's, it's under a, sec, a different section. It's like non-payment of arrears. That says 180 days. I think the contempt is not um, reined in by any legislation. I don't think there's legislation limiting a, a judge's powers once a contempt finding has been made. So I, I did look into that briefly and it looks like the consensus from the Supreme Court of Canada is that yes, they have inherent jurisdiction, but they can't use that in a way that would um, fly in the face of the terms of, of the statute. If it specifically says, here, this is the limit, it can't just arbitrarily do whatever it wants. It wasn't It wasn't a sanction for non-payment of support. It was a sanction for contempt of court. Yeah, so, hmm. so I think the question is you have a civil rem you have a civil judgment, you can't enforce it by a jail term, but you have somebody in contempt of court unrelated to the money damages, liquidated damages, that contempt is gonna be sanctioned and that could include incarceration. Yeah, I think, I think you have to look at the case law, maybe look at the case law. I know that the, there's case law that says the, that the section that you're referring to under the uh, Family Responsibility uh, FRSEA is it has to be in harmony with the family law rules. Um, so perhaps you should you look at the cases and get back to us. Like that's that's an excellent question. Like yeah. maybe in, like, in Ontario, you know. Yeah, I'd like to be able to tell my clients. Well, you know, he better pay up, or he might do four and a half years. But I don't know that that's the case here. So I will well, just say, just say, just tell your clients that there's potential penalty of imprisonment. Yeah. Um, and maybe that is enough to to compel them to pay their spouse uh, their child support. And I think Aaron Franks in the newsletter I sent you guys. I think he referred to another case where. There was a four-year penalty. Um, I think that was Nova Scotia as well. You guys down east are uh, having a lot of fun, <laughs> eh? It's wild. <laughs> it's wild. What's that? Get the shriek going. What's that stuff? What's the screech? The, get the screech going and start throwing some people in jail. <laughs> <laughs> 
Gotta do something to stay entertained, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no nonsense. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. So takeaways from this decision um, for our listeners. Marjorie, what do you think? Uh, follow court orders and pay your child support. Um, if you don't agree, and, and I'm going to paraphrase what uh, Justice uh, Jollimore said in this case. Uh, if you don't agree with an order or you think that it's wrong, appeal it. Uh, if your financial circumstances have changed since the order was made, necessitating a reduction of your child support uh, obligation, then bring a motion to change. Just don't do nothing because you are only deferring an inevitable reckoning. No, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. We see lots of, you know, people stick their head in the sand and ignore court process and hope it'll go away, either anxiety or finances or... Uh, or indifference for whatever reason they don't respond to court proceedings but if you don't respond as this payer did the court's going to make an order in your absence and you're probably not going to like it um, so that's a great point it's really important you respond we get lots of clients who come in who uh, receive i just had a client like this received a notice of their driver's license suspension Mm -hmm. let it they, they sat on it for three or four weeks you've got a really short deadline to get a refraining order to prevent the family responsibility office from suspending your driver's license and it's going to take your lawyer a day or two to get the documents in order for the court so if you've got 21 days uh, to respond don't give it to your lawyer five weeks later you know get on it right away that's a great tip rick any uh, takeaways here I, I agree with what Margie says. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I, I echo everything basically she said. Uh, in fact, those were my points. Uh, I, I guess the last oh, point I can... Marjorie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I should have gone last. <laughs> I, I guess the, la the thing I can say is I echo Justice Quinn's comments from Gordon and Starr. Uh, court orders are, are, uh, are not made as a form of judicial exercise. Uh, an order is an order. It's not a suggestion yeah. uh, and, you know, non-compliance will have its consequences. So yeah. uh, it can't, it, he, 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 he succinctly said it best in that, in that phrase. So Brittany takeaways here. I would echo what one said so far until the order is stayed, varied or overturned, you're on the hook. You have to comply. Um, so make sure that you are being proactive and, and taking any steps. If you, if you don't agree with the order, or you can't comply, make sure that you're bringing that to the court's attention. And uh, if not, you could find yourself in a very uh, undesirable situation. Yeah, being uh, a guest of the queen, so to speak, right? <laughs> That's right. All right, so this has been really, uh, really good summary. Thanks guys. Let's give our listeners and viewers some, some bonus takeaway points. So. Let's talk about stories of enforcement and support orders, uh, stories of maybe dealing with PRO, which is the Family Responsibility Office in Ontario, and or stories of representing uh, support pairs when they go into arrears. We're obviously not gonna talk about specific clients, um, but let's, uh, let's get a flavor in terms of what we experience as lawyers so our listeners can get an understanding. You wanna go first, Rick? Yeah, I, I think just an observation of enforcement support orders. And, and as Margie said, if you don't agree with it, bring a motion to change or bring an appeal, depending on the circumstances. But 
making a payment at times is better than making no payment and yet moving the process forward. I think that's the most, the key thing that if our listeners can take one point away is that it's it, making a genuine attempt to pay something based on what you're actually making and yet moving the, the case forward if you disagree with the, the decision uh, is better than doing nothing at the end of the day. Yeah, good point. I was before Justice Wood and Aurelia uh, several years ago and we're talking about uh, arrears and he said, you're gonna go in the parking lot with your client, get his checkbook and come back with the check for this amount. And then we're gonna hear your case after, after the lunch break. <laughs> so, and they call their courthouses in Aurelia cottages. So we're in cottage C. You go out to the parking lot, the client goes, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna get your checkbook <laughs> and write out a check. Uh, you know, some, some judges uh, have very little patience. Uh, I had another client, he's maybe $25,000 behind. And the court was gonna order a period of 30 days incarceration. And he thought, yeah, that's not bad. You know, I think I'll, you know, that's a good way to clear out my arrears. I go, well, when you get out, you still owe the money. It's not like, it's not like your $25,000 is going to be cleared out. Um, we, I used to practice, the Oshawa courthouse used to be in the uh, Kenneth Star building. So on the family responsibility days, they would put all the cases at the end of the hallway and all the support. The, the support pairs who hadn't paid would all line up beside each other. Mostly men, there's one or two women in there, but they're all exchanging stories, right? <laughs> so, sitting in the courtroom, they, you know, they deal with them one at a time. It wasn't a public, the judge wasn't hearing it publicly. They would just call the payers in uh, when fro counsel would call the matter. And then, you know, we'd have like seven stories, all the same, all the, all the, all the, <laughs> All the respondents had shared the same story and came to the judge with the same excuse. So, um, it, it, and it's, you know, everybody's different, right? I had, um, I had a client who was ordered to go to jail and he didn't care less whether he went to jail. He thought that was great. He was gonna go in there and sell some drugs and make some money. Um, you know, everybody's different, but I agree with Rick and Margie, you know, Follow the court order. This is serious business. Uh, the last is certainly not in your children's best interest that you'd be incarcerated. All right, Brittany, your stories. Sure. <laughs> um, based on my experience and, and review of, of the case law, I would also want to point out that for a contempt order to be issued, it's not necessary to establish that the person actually breached a specific term of the order it's sufficient to show that they engaged in actions aimed at obstructing the, court, the course of justice or thwarting or attempting to thwart a court order. So you don't have to be caught red-handed breaching the court order. It's sufficient to show that you attempted to, to breach the order to be found help. Even your conduct in a courtroom could be considered content, contempt if you're disrupting the proceeding or uh, are you from experience, Russ? No, fortunately not. But uh, the judges uh, have the inherent jurisdiction to control the process and th what occurs in their courtroom. And contempt is really the ultimate power of the court. If um, somebody's disregarding a court order or is disrupting the administration of justice. Thanks, Ulrich, uh, Brittany.
Final thoughts here. I want to thank our guests for uh, sharing their time with us today. This has been very insightful trying to get an understanding of this decision, but let's uh, get some final takeaways. Um, Rick, or sorry, Brittany, let's go back to you. Back to me. Um, well, in this case, I note the, the father opted to self-represent for uh, a large portion of the proceeding. And uh, my advice would be to at least consult with the lawyer. If, had he have done so, they would have told him the consequences of not appearing in a penalty hearing and what, what he could be looking at. So definitely when in doubt, call your lawyer. Yeah. And the lawyer might prevent the hearing from occurring altogether. They may get it settled. You might enter into a payment plan that can be filed with the court. That's a great tip. All right, who wants to go next? Uh, Rick? Uh, my final thoughts are basically, if you've listened to all the good suggestions that everyone on this panel has made, and uh, follow your lawyer's advice, and uh, your lawyer should help you uh, get through it if you should find yourself in the same circumstances. Yeah, agreed. Margie? Um, I, I'm just going to repeat what everyone else said, um, and, and just going back, like, you know, based on my experience, um, you know, I've had cases where they waited too long, uh, and, and if it, they had just uh, called me and, and uh, I would have been able to help them avoid uh, having their license uh, taken away, for example. Um, so yes, when there's a court order, if you have any questions about it, if you have concerns, call a lawyer, uh, let them uh, give you the advice that you, you, you need on how to act. Um, and if you find yourself in a situation like dad did in this, and, you know, uh, he potentially would have um, not been in that situation, like Brittany said, if he had a lawyer, um, so call your lawyer if you have any questions about a court order, uh, and if you don't agree with it, call a lawyer, see what you can uh, get, can be done. Um, we're here to help you, uh, navigate that. Yeah. And try to stay current. Um, if you're current in your support and you genuinely have a material change in circumstances and you're coming to court with clean hands, then obviously the court's going to give you a lot more wiggle room or discretion in terms of uh, accommodating the change. If you just show up or you don't show up and the support remains unpaid for several years, as in the case here, um, you're really leaving the court with no option other than to step up with enforcement steps. So I want to thank uh, our guests, uh, Brittany, Rick, Margie. This has been a lot of fun. We had uh, a couple of tech Nicole on the road, but we struggled through it. I want to thank our listeners. Uh, if you have any thoughts or questions, leave them in the comment box below. If you found this podcast or video helpful, please give us a thumbs up and let us know. <clears throat> you can share this recording and subscribe to our channel by hitting the bell icon below, and you'll get notification of any new videos that we release. So thank you for listening today. Be safe follow court orders. And if you don't like the order, speak to a lawyer and get some advice. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs>